Life Radio. Stories at the intersection of music and life. Hello and welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I'm your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com and features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on the program we feature the fabulous Ginger Coyote. Ginger started the fanzine Punk Glow back in July 1977 as an alternative to Seek and Destroy. She wanted to feature the bands that she loved that weren't getting press, and she wanted to talk to fans and get their perspective. Great magazine. It survives to this day in an online format. You can check it out at punkglobe.com. She is also the singer in the punk band White Trash Debutantes, which debuted back in 1989 and continues to play to this day as well. We talked to Ginger about her punk roots, the early San Francisco punk scene of the 70s. Ginger talks about Punk Globe, what it takes to put out a monthly magazine. She also talks about the history of the White Trash debutantes. And we listen to many entertaining stories, especially one involving meeting Gigi Allen for the first time. It's quite a pleasure to interview Ginger Coyote. Our bands shared quite a bit of history together. We went on several tours up and down the uh, West Coast. I remember a great show in Seattle where we uh, both opened up for M. DC. I can't say enough good things about Ginger. She really uh, gave us a lot of gigs, and it was a pleasure to go on the road and play many fabulous shows with her. Anyway, sit back and enjoy this episode of Music Live Radio entitled White Trash Debutante The Ginger Coyote Story. You know, this job may not be divine, but it beats working at the five and nine. Welcome, Ginger Coyote, to Music Life Radio. I'm glad to have you on the program today. Oh, thank you. It's nice being invited to do this interview. Yeah, we're really looking forward to it. So what we like to do is start off with some uh, history. So where did you grow up and what kinds of music were you listening to? I was born in the Midwest, but then I came to San Francisco when I was like in my teens or so, um, well, you know, back in the Midwest, I was listening to um, Top 40 stuff and everything, but it wasn't real Top 40 stuff. It was more uh, underground sort of things that um, the Moody Blues and Yes and and then Mata Hoople and, and, um, and bands like that. And then when I came out to San Francisco, I um, got into... Um, the glam thing with the Bowie and um, T-Rex and, and uh, again, Mata Hoople and, and um, bands like that, the pretty things, and then went developed into uh, going, in, you know, went to see the Sex Pistols. And, well, I'd heard, other, you know, other bands before the Sex Pistols, so. 
the crime. I had gone to see crime. I went to the first show at the Mobile Gardens um, in 1978. So I guess that was crime. And and then, um, you know, the Avengers and uh, the Ready Mates and bands like that were playing. And then the later uh, incarnations of like the, the, uh, the Mutants were later and um, Dead Kennedys were later. But yeah, I saw the very first punk show in San Francisco. What or at what, the Mabuhay. Yeah, what was it about the uh, punk music that at first attracted you? Well, I never was attracted to. Di- I never liked enjoyed disco music, so um, I like kind of loathe that whole scene and everything. I I I like live music. I don't like canned music. So um, I always wanted to go see bands, and so. Um, you know, for a long time in the in the seventies, there was just no place that would have live music. I mean, the live venues were very they were scattered. Few places like the Palms and Rosenthal and Green Earth Cafe and, and places like that. And then there were places in the Hate that had bands, but the majority of uh, everything was disco music. So it was really hard. And I wasn't 21, so that was even harder. (laughs) The Garden of Berkeley delights. I think that, you know, the the 60s, like the psychedelic, the Janice Joplin and Grateful Dead era, there were a lot of places to play. Then um, when the disco movement kind of took over, a lot of the people, a lot of the venues that even played live music decided that canned music was cheaper because they could just either uh, install, you know, a sound system or have a DJ come in and play music. And it was, you know, a lot more beneficial to them. And I don't think that that was probably before BMI and ASCAP were charging fees for you know, music that was actually played in clubs and stuff like that. Yeah, it's pretty funny how there's like this pendulum effect. Well, how that, you know, the, the electronic dance music and stuff like that that's come in. You know, the same problem with clubs exists today that you kind of mentioned back then. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's the house music now that, the, you know, that's the new disco stuff and the house music and rap stuff. Although there are a lot of live rap bands and I suppose some electronic electronic art bands and stuff like that. But it's like real soft and no threat to the audience, to the crowd. I don't know. It's funny that you see a lot of people nowadays that are like all like with mohawks and stuff like that, and you think, oh god, these guys are really into punk rock and everything. And then you talk to them, and they go see electronic stuff and take ecstasy and space out on that stuff. So, yeah, and there's a lot of people that wear like a punk uniform, but they really have no idea about most of the bands that started it all. Yeah, or have any idea really who it was, who they were. I mean, all they know is that they like ecstasy and they like staying up all night or (laughs) they, you know, they take all those new generation X drugs and all that stuff that, that, um, you know, give them a high and so they don't really um, actually... know what they're doing. I mean, they have no idea, no clue about, you know, the Ed Kennedys or DOA or Bad Religion, L7 bands like that, 
Motorhead, the Ramones. I mean, nowadays you can talk to you know. There are a lot of young kids that you speak that you meet on the street, and they've got the patches with discharge and GBH, dead Kennedys and germs and stuff like that. And they're really into the old school music and stuff. And there are a lot of them. There are a lot of skate kids that are into that. But then you meet the other ones, the other realm of the young kids and they're into that whole hip hop house music stuff. And although a lot of them have piercings and crazy colored hair and mohawks and all that stuff. Yeah. They're just clueless. I mean, they, they've never even heard of Blondie. They've never heard of the Ramones, Sex Pistols. I don't know. That's weird. Yeah. I just went to GBH uh, not too long ago and there was a ton of kids, you know, all, you know, underage kids. It was an all age, all ages show and they were right up in front and having a blast. It was, it was so cool to see that. Yeah. I mean, there are the legions of young kids now that are like in their teens and stuff and uh, that are high school age and stuff that really are into old school punk. And, you know, they will, if they can get into the shows and stuff and they can, and they're, they're the ones that you really want for your fans because they're the ones that have got the money to buy. (laughs) I mean, everybody else is working like a dog just to get by, let alone (laughs) buying things and stuff. So yeah, the young kids are the ones that you try to get on your side. You get them as fans, then, you know, you can sell things to them and stuff. They've got the cash because they don't have to pay rent and they don't have to (laughs) do this and do that. Yeah, yeah. So let's jump back to the San Francisco punk scene. I mean, you really jumped right into that. And how did that help form your identity? Well, I mean, um, I was young and stupid, so I didn't really look at it as forming my identity. It was just more or less a thing. That was the kind of music that I really liked. I liked that intenseness. I liked that whole dare to be different, you know, not fitting in and all that stuff. And nothing that I saw at any of those shows freaked me out whatsoever. I mean... You know, the skinheads and all that stuff, that was later more so. But, I mean, um, the things that were happening at the Mubuhe, you know, the, the, you know, the writing on the walls and the broken johns and the toilets and stuff like that. Uh, you know, that, or, you know, the broken toilets at the, in the bathrooms and stuff, that didn't bother me and things like that. I mean, I wasn't all freaked out by all that Sort of scene where a lot of people were shocked by the safety pins and like people putting safety pins in their ears and stuff like that. I guess that there was a lot of shock value in the hair color. I mean, I immediately went blue, so I had no problem. <laughs> Talk about some of your memories of uh, Dirk Dirksen back then. Obviously, I mean, he was an important figure in this whole scene. Well, um, Dirk was like the Pope of Punk, I guess, for San Francisco era. I mean, um, when I first met Dirk, he and Jerry Paulson were doing uh, the shows at the Mabuhe, and it was Dirk's and Miller Productions, and I never ever, I don't know if there was ever a Miller. I've never met a Miller. 
I know that um, Jerry Pompili would offer, or Jerry Paulson would often, he was doing Cyclone Magazine, and he'd be working the door, and I guess he would be in the office with Dirk or be, you know, the booking thing, but I never met uh, the, the Miller. I don't know who the, the Miller is and Dirksen Miller, but um, um, I didn't like Dirk at first. I thought that Dirk was like... Um, really an asshole. I mean, he was like, you know, get out of here, you welfare rats and all this kind of stuff. And, <laughs> you know, he would draw things on people. He would, like, punch them. He would do things that were, it was, he pushed the limit. And um, then after I started doing Punk Globe, Dirks kind of saw something that um, he become more of a mentor. He got to know me more, and he, you know, would we would talk, and then another side of him came out, and that was a side that was, you know, um, pretty smart. I mean, you know, always thinking about the, what new ways, to, you know, to shock people, new things. He had uh, come from a background. Uh, he had worked with um, Red Fox and different people like that down in Los Angeles. Um, uh, he'd done a lot of TV down in L.A., and he'd come up to San Francisco, and, and he decided to... Um, he was doing shows, and I think that they'd approach Ness at the Mabuhe to put in shows like Rosie and the Radiators and Rick and Ruby and people like that. And then Mary Mundy came along, and she was, like, basically one of the first people who... Um, her and Crime were the first two people, the two bands that got themselves into the Mubuhe and and Dirt and, and Ness would only do like uh, like one night or two nights, and then he saw the success, and then it went from two nights to like four and five nights, but um, then it went to seven nights a week, you know, where everything was pretty much alternative punk or metal. But I mean. Um, Dirk was very innovative, and he had a control. He had the pulse, you know. Everybody wanted to play the man. And he could, you know, there were lines out the door. He can pick. He kind of took that Studio 54 thing where he decided who was cool enough to get inside, who wasn't, who wasn't cool enough to get in. You know, a lot of times you uh, there would be just, like, people begging, clamoring to get in at the Mubuhe. So, um yeah, there was, there was definitely, he definitely had a, like that, you know, that kick him and choose him, like that uh, Studio 54 had where the elitism of if you weren't, if you didn't dress <laughs> punk enough, you didn't get in. <laughs> yeah. But then, um, when there was more clubs, the the gay community center, there was a organization called Better Youth Organization or New Youth, I think that's called. It was the Dills and Peter Urban and Flipper people and everything, and they were anti Mabuhe Gardens and they were trying to put on their own shows and they put the clash on over at the uh, Temple Beautiful. And I don't, I don't know if Paul Rad had already gotten in there doing shows or if they just. Uh, had approached the people at the temple, and then Paul went in there after that. But I remember they put on the class shows, and they were doing things at the um, gay community center do because they um, really, really did not like the whole thing that uh, Dirk was saying. He would, he was saying that if you played any other club in San Francisco, you could never play the Mabuhe and all that stuff. And 
And later on, he got more mellow, and he realized there's going to be competition. But, you know, he um, he had it for a couple of three years, where it was the only place that would bring in any kind of um, bands. And so, you know, Devo, Blondie, the Ramones, the Dictators, um, everybody played there. There were some really good shows, you know, for $3, $2, you know, never anything more than 4 or $5 at the door. Yeah, well, that's awesome. Now, what inspired you to uh, create the Punk Globe? Well, there was a magazine out, and it still, you know, does stuff uh, that was called Search and Destroy. And um, I just said it was really elitist and kind of like too serious and... It it was like that that if you didn't kind of run into a, their clique, they didn't include you in the magazine, and there was too much of a separatism. So I decided to do Punk Globe and put all kinds of people in the magazine, which included the people in the audience. And, you know, that's where I would do the Punk of the Month and everything, and it would be mainly... A lot of uh, people that were just people that would come to the shows. They were sometimes far more interesting than the bands. There was an elitism that I didn't like with the Search and Destroy, a snobbiness, and they kept covering the same bands. And there were a lot of other bands like Eye Protection, The Victims, um, The Tools, um, Jars, uh, you know, all kinds of bands that didn't, that couldn't get contractions, um, that couldn't get any kind of press. And um, I was really happy one time, uh, you know, um, Andy Cryboy that played with, uh, he played in the band, well, he was he was in Wall of Voodoo, and then he went on to be a playwright that did that um, play called White Trash Wins Lotto about Axl Rose that was going to be made into a uh, HBO special. And um, anyways, um, he um, did an interview with this guy, Chris Cardani, that uh, has a radio, sh- a radio show called um, Revenge of the 80s. And um, he, I guess, had written a song about me that was on his l- new album, this is like last year or something. And I can't remember what the name of the song was, but he wrote a song about me and said that had it been not for me in the punk globe, he would never have a career. He wouldn't have had a career. Oh, wow. <laughs> because I was, I was the first person that ever did any kind of press for eye protection. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, and uh, the, back then, everybody was relying upon... Um, press to get things because it's not like the, we didn't have access to the internet where you can go on and MySpace, Facebook, Twitter and all that kind of stuff and where you can sell your wares and, you know, hone yourself to the public. The only way that would do it is with magazines and word of mouth. And, um, I, you know, it started off with doing like, 50 to 100 copies that were like just Xerox copies for about a year and a half. And then in 78, 79, I'd started doing newsprint. Yeah, okay. And um, first 5,000, then it went up to 8,000 and 10,000. And um, I got a um, Tower Records was a distributor. And then Westbury Comics in, in Massachusetts, 
they they distributed magazines for me, and then I used um, what's it? See here or something in New York City. I had different distributors who would take things, and uh, I think Michael Board was un- involved with the working. He he helped me out at Blowfish in Boston. Helped me out. Um, and then it was like a lot of like subscriptions. People would send in like a certain amount of money, like to cover postage, and I'd send it in the mail. It was expensive because yeah. uh, because when you're doing a magazine, it's like um, for a full sized photo for a full page, it's like fifteen or sixteen dollars per screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I tell you, that, that the thing that, that back then, even with band things, you know, it's so much easier for bands now. I mean, it, you know the whole drill about putting together press packages, spending money on shipping things and mailing stuff and then tape CDs, all that stuff to different promoters and everything. And then they have to hear, they have to have print stuff and have to read it and all that stuff they you can't like say, oh, we have an article in a magazine or something. You have to send all that stuff to him, and it costs you like sometimes eight, nine dollars just to oh, send yeah. your press package <laughs> in the mail. I mean, all the money that people that we, you, yourself, that myself, other bands that had to go through. I mean, we could have probably, you know, gone to Europe three or four times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. And then we, I really? know. Some you know some of our tactics just to make it so that we would get to leave in a little bit more of an attention. We would actually send out T-shirts, and so there was a big cost of those, obviously. <laughs> and you can't forget phone bills. AT and T had the monopoly. Pacific Bell, AT and T yeah. had the big monopoly. There was no. Um, you know, um, cell phones, there were no Time Warner, there wasn't anything that was like an alternative. So your phone bills would be like four and $500 a month just from trying to book things. <laughs> you know, if you're doing a tour and stuff, oh, you could nice. rack up a $500 bill. Yeah, definitely. So while you're doing all this great work with the Punk Globe, you decided to form a band yourself, White Trash Debutantes. How did you get the idea to form uh, the band? Well, I, I, you know, I've been, you know, I'd put on benefits for Punk Globe and people would say, you know, you know, come up and sing with us or I'd introduce them and stuff like that. And, and sometimes I'd, you know, jump up, especially like with the victims and I would always have me come up and sing with her and stuff. And so, um, decided, you know, why not put something together? And so, uh, we put something together and then it kind of went down the tubes, and then I started it up again um, on, uh, like, in the late 80s for a birthday. I decided, well, why not get a, you know, have a birthday party and have the band play? And um, it was a big hit, so we discontinued, and then we got the support of Joey Ramone. He was, like, a big fan, so he really helped us out. He got us our, like, second... I think our first show... Back in the late 80s was um, for the birthday party. The second show was playing with Gigi Allen, and the third show was playing in New York at the um, at the Ritz with the Ramones, Debbie Harry, Lemmy, all those people. And that was, uh, so what was this uh, Circus of the Perverse Party? Yeah, the Circus of the Perverse Party. 
So the band basically just started off as uh, you just wanted to have a party yourself and have a good time, and then you started getting some good recognition from people. Well, at, the ni- at, at the night that we played at the Covered Wagon, Shirley, the owner, really liked us, and she thought we were the wildest thing she'd ever seen. <laughs> and so she thought it would really be... And then we played with Lula's band. Lula had a band called The Mob, and... Um, she liked it, and then I said, oh, would you like to sing with us? And then she said, sure. And so that's how, you know, that we got Lula involved with the band, and then um, we um, had, then Shirley told Liz Fairborn that was booking the covered wagon at the time to um, have us play with Gigi Allen. <laughs> and so that was our next show, was playing with Gigi Allen. How, how was that show? Uh, well, it was very intense. I mean, we opened, so I, you know, it was like crowded and everything, but there was no, like the whole, the whole shock rock thing. I mean, our things was pretty tame to what Gigi had to do. (laughs) Um, I know that Gigi was like eating, um, a lot of beans and stuff and had gone out and stuff. I didn't know what all he was up to, but I'd heard, had heard things, but I was kind of like, I didn't know him. I'd never met him before, and I was apprehensive about meeting him because I'd heard all the stories about him. And then when they were playing, I mean, he actually, he'd been eating the beans so he'd get diarrhea or be able to crap. So he was throwing shit in the audience at people. And um, then I I just remember Jane Weems being there, and she had her glasses and everything, and um, she was right up front and egging him on, and he, like, pushed her and everything, and then I guess he just took her glasses and broke them (laughs) and smashed them. And so um, later on, she tried suing Shirley, (laughs) And um, and then and was taking her to court and and had brought a video in and the video had her like um, actually being up front and taunting him and knowing what he was doing and um, you know sitting up there and taking punches in the face and all that stuff and not leaving. So the judge said to her, "Well, he hit you like three times before. Why didn't you?" leave no you're not gonna get your class <laughs> so that's kind of the, for the on-stage antics but then when backstage we had, there was a room and uh Bianca had come to see us and me and him went back there together and it, um, somebody came up and says Gigi really wants to meet you and so I went up and and um Bianca was there and he, Gigi got in between both of us and he put his arms all around us and stuff and I kept smelling this smell <laughs> and I was thinking, Jesus Christ, I mean, it really smells bad. And then I realized there was all this shit over, all over both me and Biafra because he had shit, but he had shit all over him. Yeah. And Merrill, uh, Merrill Allen taped that, and I think that he sells that tape with me and Biafra. <laughs> Covered with cheesy shit. But yeah. that, was, that was a fun story. 
Yeah, you know what's really funny is I interviewed a guy, Jeff Jeff Robinson, and he's in a band, Blood Circus. They're from up in Seattle area. They're one of those sub-pop bands. And they played the next night. And he tells a story about walking into the club going, what is the smell? They had used, and it was a bleach smell. They had used all this bleach to clean up the place, obviously. <laughs> Mm. And uh, and uh, somebody goes, oh well, Gigi Allen played here last night, and he knew exactly what they were talking about and why you know they needed the bleach. It was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, didn't, it was like it, it was an intense show. I mean, there was like just tons of people up front, a lot of like moshing, a lot of like people like a lot of skinheads, a lot of that stuff. There was that crowd for us, but it wasn't the intensest Gigi because Gigi just incited them. Yeah. He called them pieces of shit and was, you know, going on and on and on. So basically he had uh, his whole niche down where he could, um, where he knew exactly how to get them riled up and everything. Yeah. But it was like it was a fun show, and Gigi, when he's backstage, is kind of shy. Yeah, yeah, that's what I've heard. Very, yeah. very nice guy. Yeah, very respectful. So, what were you trying to achieve with White Trash Debutantes? I mean, you started off kind of like a party band, and some critics kind of say that. But I mean, you definitely have some political and cultural statements in your music. Talk about that a little bit. Well. um, I think that it's important to, that you can be a party band, you can be fun, but you can still put across messages. And um, part of my message has always been to be a liberal and, you know, never to vote rad and to, uh, you know, go for, go for uh, as left as possible. I don't, you know, condone child molestation or, you know, big, or, or, you know, animal cruelty or cruelty to old people and stuff. But, I mean, as long as it doesn't hurt people, who cares? Yeah, exactly. Live and let live. I mean, you know, people that put labels, people who worry about things and worry about, you know, names that people are going to call you if, if you're this or you're that. It's just like, stop putting stereotypes on people and just have fun and live and let them live as long as they're not hurting you. Yeah. This song is dedicated to Nick Gingrich. But Newt, your mama told us, and now the world's gonna know that you're bad in bed. You're bad in bed, but you are. You look real cool, but you're bad, bad, bad in bed. Got brand new shoes, a brand new hat, a looking that metal, a Siamese cat, a swimming pool, a big diamond ring. Oh, but Newt Murphy Brown never ever taught you how to shake your thing, cause you're bad, bad in bed. You're bad in bed, yes you are. You look real cool, but you're bad, bad, bad in bed. Got a million dollar smile, clean white teeth, you wear the latest style. You look real chic, you buy the latest tips, you can get your hip. Oh, but Newt, like Bill, you gotta learn to inhale, cause you're bad, bad in bed. bed. Bad, 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 bad,
my nerves. Newt Gingrich, the only guy who can make a Republican turn Democrat. Cause you're bad in bed. Bad in bed, yes you are. You look real cool, but you're bad, bad, bad in bed. How bad? Bad, 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 bad in bed. Kind of into this, you invited punk rock Patty to the band at some point. How did you meet her, and how did she become part of the band for a while? Well, we'd had another woman named Lenore Real Cool Chick, who I had met at the Mabuhe Gardens one night. I remember being in the bathroom, and I heard this, I just love punk rock. And I walked out, and there was like this woman in a derby hat and a suit in the bathroom and she was like in her seventies, you know, then. And, okay. um, she, and we were, everybody was saying, Oh, you like punk? And she goes, Oh, it's like a shot in the arm and everything. And she was in the pit, but she always like retained, uh, that derby hat and dressing in like, not men's suits, but women's suits with, you know, like the skirt and the, and the, and the jacket with the blouse and stuff on and everything. And she'd wear black mainly. And, and, um, her whole idea about that she thought that Jesus was gay because he was hanging out with all these guys and <laughs> stuff. Fran now had done an article for punk globe on her and she was like pretty phenomenal. She worked on the, um, on the, she was friends with Herb Kane, so Herb, she made, she got Herb Kane to show attention to punk rock, and would always tell him about all the good things and the fun things that were happening. She was on the mayoral um, campaign for um, Biafra. Okay. Basically, she knew she knew Diane Feinstein and people like that. I remember once we were at this uh, St. Grace Cathedral, or was it there? It was some place that we were at, and they were having a, all the candidates from there were there to discuss what what they do for the city of San Francisco. I think Willie Brown, Diane Feinstein. Maybe Carol Rue Silver, I can't remember, and Biafra and people like that were there. And um, I remember coming in with Lenore and Diane Feinstein said, oh, it's so good to have you here for me, Lenore. And Lenore goes, well, I'm not here for you, honey. I'm here for Biafra. <laughs> <laughs> so there she was sitting there with, you know, she was going on and on about Biafra. She really liked him a lot. And um, she was on his campaign for mayor, so so she would like she was in, and you know, it was probably through having people like her and Dirk, who was a little, who was older too, be behind you. And Dirk, be out there. In all fairness, I mean, maybe he came up with the you know dressing up in clown suits and stuff like that, but it was Dirk and. Um, people like that who really, really got the campaign rolling. And they were up in the morning and they were doing this and they were scheduling things and they were getting interviews and stuff. Piotr, you know, suffered from um, where he didn't sleep at night or where he slept weird hours. So a lot of times, I mean, he basically just made the cutoff time to even get his name on the ballot for um, yeah. running for mayor. Chi-Chi, I think, was involved, and Barbara Halbert and people like that. It was those people who really, really in, got the nucleus and Dirk. 
that really worked the nucleus, and it was people that were going out and getting on the signatures for him. I mean, the opera may have gotten it at the shows and stuff, but he was like nocturnal, so he never um, uh, he never got out during the day, and so. Um, you know, like I said, if it wouldn't have been for, you know, we were, like, I remember being down at City Hall with, with Dirk Olga de Volga from The Offs, or The Lude, and um, myself, and I can't remember who else was down. Barbara Halbert, I think, might have been down there. She was, like, managing in the Dead Kennedys at the time, and we were just waiting and waiting with pins and needles, and it's like five to four, and then Biafra finally walks in the door, and we're able to get him stamped so he can get his name onto the ballot. <laughs> I, I think even Jesus Christ Satan was <laughs> had his act together as far as that. <laughs> so now, I mean, it, it, there's, you know, there's stories there, but I mean, it, it, it was hard because Biafra. I mean, for interviews and stuff, you know, he a lot of times was late for things, sometimes two and three hours. How did you end up meeting uh, uh, Patty? Well, um, Lenore, I asked Lenore to sing with us, and she did a rap song with us, and she did Highway to Hell, and uh, Current Affair had found out about it, and they had asked us to do this, and then all of a sudden we got all these calls from different people asking us if we'd like to bring the grandma with us to do these shows, and... Lidore went to certain ones, and then all of a sudden she got to be, she, her ego came out, and it was like, well, hon, I want my own safer dressing room and all that kind of stuff. And I said, yeah. Lenore, um, you don't realize that you're kind of a novelty act, but I don't think they're going to, they're not going to shell out, you know, like $2,500 to get a trailer for you for the night and have yeah. like, you know, some, and have like the Brad Pack guys be your slave boys, so <laughs> it, it, you're going to have to think twice on that one. So then I had worked at a marketing research firm on, in San Francisco, and it was kind of a punk rock marketing research. I remember the guys from the dwarves worked there, and um, one of the guys in Zeke, before he'd gone up to uh, Seattle, was working there, and... Um, uh, there was a lot of different people that were, worked there. Uh, there was a lot of folk singers and poets and everything. And then um, Denise, D Denise D, I think Debbie Dub worked there. And um, who else was there? There was all kinds of people that we had, that worked there. And anyways, we uh, I, the Brightwood girls might have worked there. Um, anyways, um, I think Roddy. And Billy from Faith No More were working there too, and so Pat was working there. And Pat was a who Pat would like. She had this whole. She was doing the interviews and stuff. And sometimes the interviews would take twenty minutes. And she goes, she'd tell him straight out. She goes, I hate this interview. And then she goes, but I'm seventy eight years old. They have to make a living. So could you please help me out and do it? Because if I don't complete this, I'll be starving for the rest. The week. <laughs> and then she would go on and on about how she, she had heart palpitations. 
and that it makes it in time she like it die and so I guess these people that so sad so she'd always get most uh, marketing research review she would always finish them because oh, they felt so sorry because she'd go on and on about being 78 heart palpitations can barely walk but it has to be down that's how she made her living and she was getting a pension and all that stuff and she had a crack. She was had a swim, you know, staying in a place like had a swimming pool and jacuzzi and all that stuff, and then she was trying to make it sound like she was poverty stricken. There was just absolutely, and so basically, she was so funny, and 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 and, and then when they'd hang up on her or something like that, and she'd be right at the end. You could, I, the place would, you'd hear this bullshit, and, 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 and it was her because she got mad, and. Uh, she uh, she was very competitive and she was funny, and so I asked her to do do the um, to come in and sing, and she said, "Sure, I'll do it." And at first she was a little reserved, but then she was more a little more. Uh, Lenore was like into the Dead Kennedys and everything, but she she drank Lenore did, but Pat Pat smoked pot. Yeah, yeah. So she got along pretty good with everybody. I mean, everybody liked her because she, and she, I remember we were, we would be doing shows and one time we were done doing the show with Rancid and, and, um, some ska band from the Booted Glow Skulls were at the record store. Anyways, um, there was this big skinhead there and he put down a, um, he we had a cigarette and he let the cigarette that he threw it down on the ground and she goes she went up to this real big skinhead and she goes um please would you put it pick up your um cigarette and then she went in because she'd been smoking weed and she went into this whole diatribe about how she'd read in the national Enquirer about um some a, a crow picking up a cigarette and taking it to the haymow and at a farm yeah. and it just started to fight it started a fire in the in the haymow and the <laughs> in the barn and it's like burning the entire house down and everything <laughs> and so she said watch your hot butts and then she offered him marijuana but then, then she told him that she paid $20 a joint for it not to bogart the joint <laughs> so <laughs> she ended up having we ended up having all these skinheads during the time warp with us that night and then wow. when we were in New York uh, the um Neighbor, I mean, we stayed with uh, across the street from the Hell's Angels on third or second or third street, I think it was. And um, the guy Jim that we're staying with says, "Oh, you know, you want to stay clear of them, this and that." Next thing I know, it's a path out there smoking weed with them, (laughs) and she went into the clubhouse, and (laughs) that's where they rape all those girls. (laughs) <laughs> and then and, the, and then when we played, all the Hell's Angels came to a show at CBGB's. Oh wow! <laughs> and they rooted Pat on and bought her all these drinks. <laughs> very very cool. So uh, another person you had invited to the band was uh, Tanya Harding. How did that happen? Well, I mean, that was because um, she got the you know the whole Nancy Kerrigan Tanya Harding thing came out and. Um, a lot of people were persecuting her, and I thought that she was like talented, but she just didn't have the money. 
you know, that Nancy yeah. Kerrigan had, and she didn't have the money for the outfits, and she, you know, was always the underdog. So people were offering her jobs and stuff, like to be a sumo wrestler and stuff like that. Apparently she had a contract with King Productions that did all the current affair and and all those shows like that, and she had signed a deal with them for like two years or a year or something or so many months or something. And her lawyer, Bob Rawlings, contacted me and said that they were interested in our offer. And so we were going to go up to um, North by Northwest, or, or, or we were doing the uh, Music West thing up in Vancouver, and they had a uh, publicity person that uh, 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 that worked for Kids in the Hall and all that stuff, and so she immediately got it onto the wire service that Tanya Harding was interested in joining the White Trash Debutantes. And it, we were all over the news. We were, Conan O'Brien was talking about us. Uh, we did all kinds of TV, Man Cow, Howard Stern, all those people did interviews with us and um, about, you know, why we'd want her and all that kind of stuff. And then, and then it was like, it was like, you know, they had their descriptions of the band and, and they yeah. and they also have a pot smoking grandmother. <laughs> and, and then when we played up in um, Portland, the, the Satyricon band up there had a uh, sign that said that it was either a masterminded plan to get attention or we were the nuttiest people in the world <laughs> for inviting her to be in the band. <laughs> They were now beginning to realize that we probably was the the best plan to get attention because we got all the attention for it. But anyways, they put out a welcome back, Tanya, to Portland (laughs) thing. And Tanya never showed up, but the president of her fan club came to our show, and all of her fan club people were there. Oh, our, cool. We had our friend Jim, and he was doing a film about it. Instead of it was, he did a takeoff and Michael Moore's my uh, Roger and me. Instead of that, it was Tanya and me, <laughs> and he was like doing interviews with all these people who had <laughs> who had worked with Tanya, people at gas stations who had served her, people that knew her mother. And he was out, you know, he was asking all these questions about what kind of brushes that she got beat with and what kind of beer she bought and, <laughs> and what kind of cigarettes she smoked and all that kind of stuff. And and then when he had met this um Laban that was the the fan club manager, he he had told him that that there was a band in town that was doing you know, invited Tanya and he she goes, That's all over the news. She goes, I think they're Satan worshippers. <laughs> they go, they have this grandmother in the band, and she's like saying that she's on the highway to hell, and we're going down there to demonstrate. So they were demonstrating, saying that we were taking advantage of Tanya Harding's good name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is funny. <laughs> and, I, and so I was getting interviewed for King Television up in... Um, or I think it was King up in Seattle was down there. Yes. The radio, the television station up in Seattle was down there to uh, interview me. So I was getting interviewed, and there's all these people boycotting the show, and this like boycott this band. They're a bunch of sickos. They're using our poor precious Tanya to get attention for themselves. And they're they're calling us devil worshippers and all that stuff. And I said, well. 
I mean, we're just trying to get, yeah, we're trying to get attention, but we didn't actually, we're not the ones that clubbed Nancy <laughs> Kerrigan. I mean, isn't that the pot con, the kettle black? <laughs> yeah. And then Pat was right there, and they were interviewing her, and she was telling him things like, well, I just think that Tanya needs to smoke some marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. Yeah, you've been featured on, uh, or the White Trash Debutantes have been featured on many TV shows and films, and obviously that sounds like one of the highlights. What are some other ones that you have? Oh, uh, you know, um, Roseanne wrote about us in the, in her show. Um, Kurt Loder was very kind to us. I mean, I remember being at the Gathering of the Tribes thing, and uh, he was there for uh, to interview people for um, MTV, and they were asking different people what kind of shoes or what bands they, you know, what bands they like. And uh, they had, you know, interviewed uh, Lux and um, Ivy from the Cramps. And then all of a sudden they approached me and they said, would you like to, or Kurt Loder would like to interview you? And I go, does he know who I am? And he goes, of course he does. I go, are you sure? <laughs> he goes, yeah, he's a fan of your bands. <laughs> so I got on MTV and I, I mean, you know, he had, he used me in a lot of segments because he asked all these different questions. So it wasn't only for just one certain thing that they, they like spliced me up and put me in a lot of different specials. That oh, yeah. was really nice of him. And Current Affair did stuff with us, uh, Inside Edition, in Entertainment Tonight, all kinds of damn people, you know, people like that did stuff. Um, National Enquirer did Stories of the Globe. <laughs> and you had some of your music on, uh, what, Nash Bridges? Yes, Nash Bridges. And then our, our music, along with yours, is in Tweak City with Giuseppe Andrews. We were also in there playing in it. And your music's in the party scene, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, in this movie called Femme Fatale with Lisa Zane, she got a couple of songs in there for us. And then um, a lot of like young student films and stuff that are like art films that oh, yeah. like, you know, indie people. But some of the indie people have gone on to do bigger things now. But um, we, you know, got music in their first things, first project movies and stuff. How did you get invited to work with uh, Danielle Steele and contribute to her book, His Bright Light, which was about her son, Nick Traina's battle with uh, bipolar disorder? Nick was a friend, and um, apparently he had talked to her a lot about me, and, um, you know, he used to call me, and we used to talk for two and three hours and uh, he he was living over in Richmond or something like that. So I um, didn't um, didn't uh, uh, you know I don't think he lived with her at the time. He was living over in the East Bay, and um, so I um, got to know him. And you know our band we played together a couple of times, and then he was putting together a show at the uh, at the. Um, Cocodry that he wanted us to be on, and that was like right before uh, he did that show over at the bomb shelter, and he died. But um, 
that night he called and I didn't pick up the phone and he was wanting to talk. And it was like 2.30 in the morning or something like that. And then the next morning I woke up and it was like, you know, a famous author's son, dad, and I knew it was him. So um, I, you know, looked, I found the paper and sure enough it was, you know, um, or we listened to the news and, and it was like that Nick Trina had died. So I... um you know, had gone to the funeral home and I introduced myself to Danielle and Danielle uh, wrote a letter to me and asked me if I'd contribute to the book. She said that Nick loved me and that, um, and that he was a big fan of the music and that, uh, of our music and that, uh, she wanted me to be, you know, to write for the book. So I did. Very cool. You left this earth way too soon. But I see you now when I look at the stars and the moon That cute little twinkle in your eye is right up there in the evening sky You're a rebel even as a child Never boring, planned a mile You do a style in your own way Hey Nick, I just wanna say you're okay Although your life was way too short You were always a pal who gave me support And when you put your words into song You were never at a loss But when it came to the talk shows You knew Jerry Springer was the boss You were rebel even as a child Never boring when a mile You were style in your own way Hey Nick, I just wanna say you're okay Although you're no longer here, I can still feel you always here. Be it a laugh or just a small sigh. But you know what? The best thing is, I can still see that little twinkle in your You've had a lot of different musicians in the in the band over the course of uh, the history, uh, over the years. What were some of the challenges that you had keeping together the entity known as White Trash Debutantes? Well, of course, it's like any band. Uh, it's hard. Uh, you know, the bass, the bass drum situation is really hard. If you tour and you play a lot, it's really hard. If you want to tour, most people that live in San Francisco can't afford the tour. 
And, you know, uh, it's like, and it's only getting worse up there. I, I can only imagine that the yuppies are taking over up there. And with the outrageous rents and stuff, where people just really can't afford to take time to go off and do be on the road. So a lot of times when we'd want to tour and stuff, we'd, you know, have to get new people. And, uh, and then there's the frustrations. Like some people say we, we played too much. Other people saying, oh, there wasn't enough money. Other, you know, everybody's got their gripes. Oh, sure. And yeah. it's hard. And so, um, I used to be, you know, this, be this and that. And then people move and they got, you know, or, you know, they think it's too much of a joke. Who, you know, there's all different kinds of reasons why people do what they do. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, I also hear a lot about it now, a lot of other bands that have gone through the same kind of turmoil, especially with drummers and bass players. It's real hard to keep them because they're in demand. And if you're a good drummer, you're a good bass player, there are bands that really want you to be in their band. And they'll do things, you know, they'll pay a top dollar to, you know, to be, to be in the band. So it's hard. Yeah, here's a question we like to ask everybody. What does music mean to you? Well, music is a lifestyle. Music is kind of like where I come from as far as like, um, that's always been a, a main interest, you know, with the with the punk globe. You know, it goes off, it went off into soap operas and actors and stuff. And it still does, you know. And now I'm getting more into comedy, and, and we're doing authors and stuff like that, interviewing people like that. But uh, music is still the main goal of the magazine, and it's always been a love that I, you know, have always liked is music and being in the band. Also, I realize how hard it is for people to get press, and. Um, you know, so I try to give younger bands, and I also like to get um, new bands, or, or, you know, established bands. And we've been fairly lucky. You know, Sky did that interview with Debbie Harry. Um, we had someone to do an interview with um, uh, with uh, um, Crispin Glover. We've had a lot of, like, you know, uh, Boy George. We've had a lot of good, you know, uh, interviews. Went back when the newsprint, you know, I had Joey Ramone and and uh, Wayne Hussey from the um, Mission UK, the B52s. I mean, there were a lot of people that I interviewed back then too. That was uh, that were. Um, you know, and that was part of the way is that, that also helped back in the days that I gave a lot of people their first interviews. I did the Dead Kennedys first interview, and Klaus and um, Biafra both have acknowledged that, and I you know, that featured in some sort of a book or something about you know the making about the Dead Kennedys, and they did an interview with me for that. And I talked about, you know, doing their first interview. I also did the first interview for Faith No More. And um, Billy ended up producing us and also played with us. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's been a long life, you know, a long-time friend. Um, then there was, you know, we've had people like Margaret Cho. She sang with us when Laura and uh, Jerry were in the band. And she'd get up and, like, she if somebody wasn't there, if we needed an extra singer, she'd get up and we'd put on a blonde wig and stuff. And now she's huge. I mean, she's yeah. a big star. Uh -huh. 
And, um, you know, um, she acknowledges it, you know, she goes, my first punk band, she tweets that and puts it on Facebook and and she, you know, puts it in her act too, about being in the white trust debutante. She talks about it. Oh, that's super cool. Now let's, yeah. yeah, getting back into punk globe. So you, you went on a little bit of a hiatus cause you're the white trash debutantes were playing so much, but in 2005, you kind of brought it back, uh, as an online uh, magazine. How has the uh, punk globe changed over the years? Well, the way it's changed is that um, it, it's no longer, you know, in the format of print, so um, which is a lot less costly. It reaches far more people on the internet. Um, you know, you have a wider accessibility of reaching all different countries and stuff. Everybody has access to a computer or has access to a library or some friend that has a computer that they can look in. We get people from all different countries and stuff. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's still a chore because, you know, it's like getting people to get their, to make their, um, to make their um, deadline and to get the things done. And you have to hound people, you know, and, you know, to remind them to get things, you know, to get the interview done and all that stuff. It's hard, but, you know, um, it's a, it was a lot more expensive back in the day. So I appreciate the the online thing. The um, Punk Globe, you know, was not month. It was monthly for... 10 years straight or 11 years straight. And then, uh, then it went to every once in a while, the magazine would come out and we tried to do it four times a year, not always, but we did try to keep it going, but it was hard because with the band and stuff, we did shows a lot and we toured and we went to Europe and we, I mean, we went to Japan and all that stuff. So, and you know, you're dealing with all different types of, um, personalities and stuff and so i'm sure but you know some of the stuff that everybody goes through oh sure and well you have and you have a huge group of people uh contributing does anybody stand out that we'd like to talk about or or maybe just talk about uh how are how do you coordinate all of this it seems like there is an extremely a large amount of work and coordination that goes into the magazine well, it, it, it's like I'm pretty much of a free fall. If anybody wants to contribute, they can. I try to get an average of two to three interviews in, so there will be something in there. And then there's, and then always it seems like there's different people that um, want to put their, you know, that want to get things in. I've um, you know, I had some, back in the day, uh, uh, John Grise, you know, that was in um, uh, Napoleon Dynamite, he uh, used to do photography. He used to take pictures for me. He used to come and see the band. Um, Lisa Zane uh, would also take photographs for Funk Globe. Um, Dorothy Lyman. D.B. Buell, Joey Ramone even did stuff for, you know, Punk Globe. He wrote stuff for us back in the, back when it was in print. And then, um, now we've got like Jane County and Miss Guy and uh, Miss O and the Gypsy Poet and Mark that does the brilliant covers and Charlotte does the coding in Australia. And, uh, we've got Rotten in England and, um, 
Teddy Dolan has offered to do some uh, to do some stuff, write some stuff, and do interviews for us. And she is in um, Norway, and she wrote that book about a vicious love affair about Sid Vicious. And Jim Rose, you know, from the Jim Rose Circus, also does contributes to the punk club. And Margaret Cho does too. Very cool. Yeah. Was it what? So what else is going on uh, for you, Ginger? What uh, what's in store for Ginger Coyote? Oh boy! You take good, you take the bad, you take them both, and there you have the facts of life. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and when the world that doesn't seem to be living up to your dreams suddenly you're finding out the facts of life are all about you. Uh, well, you know, hopefully living and keeping on doing what I'm doing. And girls, they just want to have fun. Cindy Locker, who I was with the night that John Lennon died, we were driving to a party. She'd played at the old Waldorf in a band called Blue Angel with Rick Derringer. And we'd been, or, or Rick Derringer came up to the Mabuhe after the show, and me and Rick, and I'd gone to see him done at the, uh, and I, I think I brought the victims were playing at the uh, Mabuhe, and and so I brought Rick Derringer and Cindy Lauper up there to see them. That's uh, and so that's how uh, Rick didn't go to the party, but Cindy did, and she was in the car with us. And when they announced that John Lennon had died, and, and every time I see her, I remember we were in that car, and <laughs> when. <laughs> When we heard that John Lennon died, and she goes, you'll always be in my heart. And then I go, good. (laughs) Where can uh, people go to check out uh, Punk Globe White Trash Debutantes? Uh, Well, Punk Globe is, you know, www.punkglobe.com. And White Trash Debutantes pretty much is like Facebook. You know, that's the main place where... You know, there's music, there's all kinds of stuff up there. There's things that we have the White Trash Debutants page. It used to be MySpace, and we still have the MySpace page. But I don't know if many people do MySpace anymore. Yeah, they tried to bring it back, but I don't know. I don't think it really worked out too well. Facebook's a good place to go. So if anybody wants to contact you for shows or anything, that's where to go. Yeah. Yeah on Facebook or go through Punk Globe and there's a, um, you know, contact email there. Talk about who is in the band right now. Well, we've got Polly Gray that's on guitar and Eric Bortz, who, um, the drummer, and uh, he's really a great guy and Polly's great. And uh, Chelsea Rose, who played with, um, who also plays in Bite, is singing with us. And a girl named Lynn Electra, Lynn Herman, um, they, uh, she's singing with us on occasion. Um, and then we have sometimes Chaos and Mike from um, Vancouver that play with us, and Amy, who used to live down here and play a lot of shows with us, and then she moved to to um, Portland and got married. So, but she, you know, wants to come in if we did a Northwestern, she'd come out and play. She'd come out and play with us. Those are basically the people that are steadfast. Um, I played with Polly, you know, um, for. A good almost nine, ten years. Yeah. And Eric, too. So, you know, we've been pretty consistent. Again, you know, it's a bass player that, you know, we, you know, go through, but it's not like, you know, and that's only because they, uh, 
like the bass player that we were using originally was a bass player from Candy from Candy for Strangers or from Strangers, and he moved back east to Boston, and so we had to get a new bass player then. And then I think we used Adam from Psycho Thunkopus for a while. Then he was ended up playing with Psycho Thunkopus for doing a reunion show and all that stuff, and. So he ended up, we ended up having to get another bass player, and, and uh, we used Keith, or, or Mike played bass with us from Canada, and um, Keith, um, you know, uh, then Chelsea's husband came in and played with us, too, on bass and, and guitar. So, you know, we've had different, the bass player, but the drummer, Eric and I, and uh, Chelsea and, and Polly have been in the band for a good 10 years. Yep. So, yeah, we've been, you know, it's been a long time. You know, it, it seems like it's only yesterday, but no, we, you know, we were playing shows back in 205 and 206 and stuff, so. Yeah, yeah, time goes by so much faster now than it did. Oh, tell me. We <laughs> <laughs> I just blink and it's like a year went by. What happened? <laughs> really? I mean, like, it's like. When you're waiting to turn 21 and be able to drink, the time takes forever. And then after you hit 21, you turn 34 in a matter of minutes. I mean, it's just like after you after you hit 21, the time just goes by so much faster. Yeah. I mean, you don't real, you know, you're waiting forever. You're like waiting for that clock to hit 12 o'clock or one or 12 or one so you can go into a bar and say, I can drink legally. <laughs> I want this because you're finally 21. And it seemed like an eternity, a lot of false, a lot of fake IDs that Flo makes for you, all that stuff. And then finally, when you're able to drink legal, the next thing you know, you're collecting Social Security within a matter of days, because that's how fast the time goes by. Yeah, it really does. It really does. I mean, it's like, you know, you just don't realize, you know, that... You think that, uh, and a lot of the stuff that happens, you think, oh, that just happened like a couple of years ago, and then you stop and you realize that a couple of years ago was more like five years ago, you know, six years ago. Yeah. So yeah, it's like, it's like you know, like sand through an hourglass. Yeah. <laughs> These are the days of our lives. <laughs> well, uh, thank you very much, Ginger, for the interview. This has been great. So good. I hope it was funny enough and informative enough. Um, and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Looking for attention everywhere she goes. It's not who she is. It's who she knows. Needs to be in the limelight all the time. Developing her body, but never her mind. She's a celebrity. A Lee wannabe. Looking for her identity. She's a
with a mutant child of Tom Cruise And I'd be on the front page of the Weekly World News I'd be on a Drew Barrymore wannabe Looking for my sobriety I'd be a Riley on the Hollywood Squares Somebody tell him